in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. As you are being seated, find the Gospel of John, chapter 4. The Gospel of John, chapter 4. Again, it is good to see everyone here this morning. Um, have a little sickness in my house. My wife's sick, and so um, when Mama's not feeling well, the whole house isn't feeling well, right? It's tough to, tough to get things done. Although I'll say she got up this morning was ironing clothes, like shivering with sickness. And I was like, get in the bed. <laughs> can be ironing clothes when you have a virus or something. So don't get close to me after service unless you just need to. But I should be fine. I'm excited to preach to you the sermon from John chapter 4. And if you remember a few weeks ago, we were in chapter 3, and we talked about um, the story of Jesus and Nicodemus. And Nicodemus was this Pharisee, this religious man, this Jewish man, who, who Jesus had this conversation with. And now in John 4, we're going to see Jesus is talking to a, a completely different type of person. It's going to be a woman, not a man. She is not a Jew, she is a Samaritan. She's not a Pharisee, not a religious person. She is actually a you know, well-known sinner in her, in her society. And so we're going to see how Jesus is able in chapter 3 to share the truth with one type of person, and then in chapter 4 share the truth with a whole different type of person. And the way we're going to do this, we're going to read through a few verses at a time, and we're going to give you, I'm going to give you three main points in the sermon this morning. If you're ready to start reading the word, say word. We'll read verses 1 through 4 of John chapter 4. When therefore the Lord knew how the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself baptized not but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again unto into Galilee. And he must needs go through Samaria. So let's stop there. So we talked a couple weeks ago in John 3 about how John the Baptist was starting to get more people, uh, less people. Less people were coming to see John the Baptist and more people were going to see Jesus. And we talked about, you know, Jesus' fame was growing. His people were like, the word was getting around that, hey, this might be the Son of God. You should go see, see what he's about. And so People are going to see him. And so in, in verse 1 of this text, it says that the Pharisees had found out, these religious people that we know eventually hated Jesus and wanted to kill Jesus, uh, they found out that he was growing in popularity. And so for some reason, this causes Jesus to leave this place of Judea in the south and head north to Galilee. Let me ask you this, church. Was Jesus afraid of the Pharisees? No. I mean... He wasn't afraid of them, but he also knew they, had, they were plotters, right? They were schemers. But Jesus was not afraid of the Pharisees or any man, but Jesus was focused on the will of the Father. So he was going to go wherever the Father wanted him to go and do what the Father wanted him to do. Let's read verses 5 and 6. Then cometh he to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near to the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied with his journey, 
sat thus on the well, and it was about the sixth hour. So from Judea to Galilee was probably about a three-day trip, right? And they're walking, of course. And so um, they would often obviously stop for rest, rest stops, just like we do if we go somewhere, right? We take rest stops. And so he stops in Samaria at this town called Sychar, and we see there in the Scripture that it's a, it's a place where Jacob, from back in Genesis, had this land and gave it to his son Joseph. Now, it's interesting that there's a well there and a well that Jacob had dug 2,000 years earlier. I actually read in one place that that well is still there, still in existence today. Pretty interesting. But this Jacob's well here is where Jesus stopped. Jesus was tired. Jesus was human, right? He experienced tired, the thirst, hunger, fatigue, and he stopped, but he didn't really stop for water. He stopped for a divine appointment. Look at verse 7 and 8. Then comes a woman of Samaria to draw water. And Jesus saith unto her, Give me to drink. For his disciples were going away unto the city to buy meat. If anyone ever asks, How many disciples does it take to buy lunch? The answer is all of them, apparently. <laughs> they all went. Like, what, what do you, nobody's going to stay around with Jesus? But anyway, yeah, that's none of my business. But this woman comes out. He's there alone. The disciples are going to McDonald's to buy lunch or whatever. Not really. They, she comes out, and he looks at her and says, give me a drink. Now, these, it was common in this day for ladies to go out with a bucket, a pail, or whatever, and get water for drinking, bathing, cooking, or whatever. But they would usually do it early in the morning, late in the evening. But she comes at noon, like the hottest part of the day, which is probably why Jesus is sitting there, you know, he's sitting there hot. And he asked her, hey, give me a drink. He, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, initiates a conversation with this lady. Look at verse 9. Then saith the woman of Samaria unto him, How is it that thou, being a Jew, askest drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria? And then John tells us, For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. So when Jesus said, hey, give me a drink, she was surprised. Why is this guy talking to me? And the reason she was surprised is that they were of different backgrounds, right? She, he's a Jew. She's a Samaritan. Do you know who the Samaritans were? I'm sure some of you have heard this before. Some of you know this. I think I'll put this up there for you on the screen there, but I hope it's right. Next one, Cooper. Wait for it. No, okay. Maybe not. Never mind. Go back. Never mind. Maybe it's not in there. I'll just tell it to you. The Samaritans. Hey, we found it. Thank you. The Samaritans. Here, there's these differences between these two people. The Samaritans were a basically like a mixed breed of people, a mixed mixed race of people. So, in 722 before Christ, 722 BC, um, the Assyrians captured the northern kingdom, and all these people got mixed together. Basically, the Jews got mixed with these pagan people. And the, the people that came from that are known as the Samaritans. And so Jews did not like Samaritans. There are three things that, that describe this. First, they're a different ethnicity. And so many Jews would look down on them because of their race, or their, their background. Is it appropriate for us as Christians to look down on people because of their background or their race? I'm just throwing that out there, right? We should not. Jesus didn't. Jesus thought it okay to come and speak to her and share the truth with her and we should do the same. 
Some of the most racist people I've ever met have been in churches. That was on my notes. I'm throwing it out there. I've seen churches be very inappropriate toward people from different backgrounds, and that should not be the case. Cannot be the case. Should not, cannot be the case. Secondly, there was a religious difference. I found this interesting that these Samaritans, they held to parts of the Old Testament. They held to the first five books, but they didn't follow the prophets or the poet, poets of the Old Testament. They really held those first five books. They also promoted a different style of worship than Jews and a different place of worship. She's going to tell them there that uh, Jews worship in, uh, in this text uh, in a place called Mount Gerizim. So they're different on ethnicity, they're different on religion, and then geographically different. Um, have you ever done this before? Have you ever been in Walmart and you see somebody in the distance that you know, but you don't want to talk to that person, and so you go the other way? If you've done that, raise your hand. We got some liars in here, I think. Just kidding. Just kidding. That's bad. It's bad when the preacher does that. I'm going this way. I'll take the long way around the store to avoid somebody if I really want to avoid them, right? It's, that's not good, but you know. Have you ever done that driving somewhere? Like, I'll go the long way around because I just want to avoid a place, a certain road, a certain thing. Jews would take the long way around, sometimes six or seven day trip, instead of the three day trip that they might avoid going through Samaria. Like, that's a pretty bad hatred, right? I'm just going to go around. I'm not going through their land. But verse 4 says Jesus had to go through there. Jews would avoid Samaritans, but Jesus would not. They were a part of his mission. And again, I can apply that to church today. If some church might say, this certain group of people does not deserve our mission or does not deserve the gospel, I would say, no, everyone deserves the gospel. So our first point this morning, our first main point of three, is that Jesus shows us that the gospel breaks through barriers. He could have even hurt his reputation if people would have seen him talking to this lady. But he did not care, did he? He didn't care about his reputation. He knew this was a lady who needed truth. She needed hope. She needed help in her sinful state. And it reminds us that the gospel is not restricted. The gospel of Jesus Christ should be preached to all people. Disney might not say it, but I will. To all men, women, boys, and girls, the gospel should be preached. Right? To all races, all nationalities, all socioeconomic classes, all political parties, whoever, the gospel should be preached to all. Because all, if they will believe, will be saved. Now, many won't believe, we know that. But if God does a work in them and they trust him, they'll be saved. Atheists can be saved. Agnostics can be saved, right? Muslims can be saved. Jehovah's Witnesses can be saved. Mormons can be saved. Cultists can be saved. Even self-righteous Baptists can be saved through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus thought it worth his time to speak to this lady. And I'm just convicted by that to say, wow, I need to be ready to speak to folks about the truth of Christ like he was. Spurgeon said, dear friends, whenever you feel the drawings of the Spirit in any particular direction, do not resist them, but yield yourself entirely to his gracious influence, just as your Lord did. May we understand this truth and may we take that gospel forward. Look at verse 10. 
The conversation here continues. Jesus answered and said unto her, If thou knewest the gift of God and who it is that saith to me, Give me to drink, thou wouldest have asked of him, and he would given thee living water. Can I summarize that verse for you, verse 10? He said, hey, if you knew who I was, you wouldn't be worried about our differences. <laughs> you would be interested in what I have to offer. Jesus is always ready to offer mercy to people. Verse 11. The woman said unto him, sir, thou hast nothing to draw with. I'm like, I was, I, as I read that the first time this week, I was thinking, did the disciples take the bucket to town? <laughs> did they even leave Jesus the bucket? Like, what, you know, but... She said, you have nothing to draw with. You don't have a bucket. You don't have a pail. How are you going to get water? Verse 11, the well is deep. From whence hast thou that living water? Where are you going to get this water from, sir? And it was their custom to travel with a bucket. And again, I think maybe the disciples had it. But she, like Nicodemus in chapter 3, right? She's not quite understanding what he's saying. She's thinking on physical terms. She's like, where are you going to get the water? Like Nicodemus, and Jesus said, you must be born again. Nicodemus said, how can I do that? They're thinking more about physical things and not spiritual things. Look at verse 12. She said, are thou greater than our father Jacob, which gave us the well and drank thereof himself and his children and his cattle? To her, Jacob was a, a hero, right? A hero of the faith and a hero of her ancestors and and he dug this well that had been providing drink for her every day. But verse 12 was really just her saying to Jesus, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are to say that, you know, you're going to come and give living water? Verse 13. Jesus answered and said unto her, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again. But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. I love verses 13 and 14. He tells her plainly, right? If you drink this water from this well, you're going to come back tomorrow and get some more. And the next day you're going to come back. And every day you're going to have to keep traveling back out here in the middle of the day to get more water to quench your thirst. But if you drink of the water that I give you, and he's, thinking, he's talking here in a spiritual sense, right? If you receive me, then you will be satisfied how many of us spend our days trying to be satisfied with things this world gives us instead of being satisfied in christ is there a reason that our world is so depressed and so down in the dumps and so negative and so frustrated and all these different things maybe we're trying to find the answers everywhere else but where god wants us to find the answers I read about a missionary in the late 1800s who went to India, and he was so excited, as most missionaries are. When you first go on the field, super excited. One year in, he was out of energy, out of hope, and he was just miserable, ready to just go back home. And he, he, he tells the story of one night, he, he tossed and turned all night, couldn't sleep, knew he was struggling. The next morning, he just decided, I'm just going to take a moment and just pray. And so as he began to pray to God, John 4.14, as we just read, popped into his head, popped into his mind. And he wrote this after his prayer. He wrote, I resolved to stop drawing on myself so constantly and to begin drawing on God instead. 
he came to the end of himself and realized, I can't do this anymore in my own power, my own strength. And he goes on to write, incredibly to me, that because he made that a daily practice, he said he never knew an hour of despair for the rest of his life after that day. He was so into receiving from the Lord and the peace of God and the comfort of God that he was able just to overcome everything else. Church, no matter how much energy you have, no matter how much talent you have, no matter how many resources you have, sooner or later our well can run dry. And so we need the living Christ, the living water to help us. Sometimes it's only when we lose everything that we realize God is everything that we need. That brings me to my second main point. Jesus is the living water who alone can satisfy a person's deepest need. How many of you like to drink water? Anybody? How many like water with a meal? I've heard some of you say it before. I'll drink water, but not with a meal. It's, it's awful. I've got to have my sweet tea, right? That's me, too. I want my sweet tea with a meal. But I'll say this. If I go out and jog or exercise or do any work in the yard or anything like that, when I get back home, I want a glass of ice water. It's just so good. It just quenches that thirst. Even up here preaching, get hot, I want a bottle of water. Just, it's good. It quenches that thirst. Most Sundays when I leave, I'm out there in the van just chugging a thing of water, you know, because I, I get hot up here. How many of, again, Jesus is the living water spiritually. He satisfies the thirst within our soul. And things of this world that we strive for, success and possessions and all these things, relationships, things we strive for might satisfy us momentarily, but they never will ultimately. They never will ultimately. I want to show you something. If you have your Bible open, flip over to John chapter 7. I think we have to mention this in the context of John chapter 4. John chapter 7, find verse 37, and let me tell you quickly about the background. We read, Brother Dale read Numbers today where God's people were thirsty in the wilderness and God said, I'm going to provide for them. He told Moses to hit the rock and water flowed from the rock. And the water that flowed from the rock satisfied million, two million, three million, millions of people, many people out there. God provided for them. And so every year the Jews would do this Feast of Tabernacles to celebrate what God had done bringing water from the rock as a part of that feast. And in the last day of that feast, someone would stand up, take a large pitcher of water, and they would pour it out for everyone to see, kind of a, as a picture, right? Kind of like we do baptism. It's a picture of the death, burial, resurrection, the new life. This pouring out of this pitcher of water was a picture that God provided for them in the wilderness and to remember that God will provide for them now. And in John chapter 7, Jesus is there, and they're having this feast, and it's the last day. But notice, Jesus doesn't stand up and pour out a pitcher of water. Look at verse 37. In the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. 
Jesus showed them that he is the fulfillment of God's satisfaction for his people. He is the fulfillment of God's quenching of the thirst. So if we go back to John 4, and Jesus had told this lady, you should ask a drink of me. This was a person, this lady, the woman at the well, was a woman who was struggling. She needed peace. She needed relief from the guilt of the sinful life she'd been living. She needed her empty soul filled. And again, she had been seeking to fill it through men, as she had been married five times, and now the man she's living with uh, was not even her husband. And so she was trying these, these relationships to satisfy herself. And Jesus says, no, I'm the only satisfaction. I am the answer to the greatest need in your life. I know people, and you know people, who will bounce around from thing to thing, from vice to vice, from church to church, bounce around looking for happiness. And you just want to take them and say, just stop. No matter where you go and what you try, until you get right with the Lord, you're not going to have that peace, right? But we, people do that. We bounce around. We try thing after thing. And, and Jesus said it in verse 7, believe on me. With all you are, with, with all you have, lean on me, abide in me. Verse 15 of John 4. The woman said unto him, Sir, give me this water that I thirst not, neither come hither to draw. In your opinion, as you read verse 13, is she getting it yet, or is she still thinking about some water to quench her thirst? I don't think she's getting it yet, do you? She's not quite there. She's like, you know what? That sounds good. I'll take the water. <laughs> no, she's still not getting it. So Jesus does something that is difficult but needed. He gets personal. Look at 16 through 18. He said unto her, Go, call thy husband, and, and come back. And the woman answered and said, I have no husband. I like that answer, by the way. I have no husband. Jesus said, You're right to say you have no husband. You've had five husbands, and he whom you're with now is not your husband. Have you ever had to tell someone a difficult truth? That's not an easy thing to do, is it? Especially if it's someone you love or care about. To tell them something hard or difficult, that, that's a hard thing to do. But isn't that sometimes needed? Right? As parents, I think we have to do that with children. It's hard to tell them this thing, but they need to hear it, you know? Or if you have a really good friend, you can do that with them maybe. And Jesus does a hard thing here by getting very personal with her about her past, her relationships. I think Jesus knew. It does no good. It's, it's going to do no good to have this conversation with her until she realizes what her deepest need actually is, that she is a sinner. And I think it had to hurt this lady. I'm sure it hurt her anytime someone brought up her past. Are you that way? Do you have things about your past that when people bring it up, you're like, ugh, wish you wouldn't bring that up? We probably all have some of that, right? I wish you wouldn't have brought that up about, about my past. I haven't talked. I hadn't said this yet, but you know this lady. Most of the ladies would go together in the mornings or evenings to get water, but she's out there in the middle of the day by herself. Do you think she might be doing that because she's a social outcast? I just imagine her walking through the village, heading toward the thing, and 
the well, and I can imagine people like laughing at her, pointing at her, you know. Just, I can imagine her life was not very good. And so here we, here I go again. I'm at this well having this random conversation with a guy, and now he's going to bring up my past. She's like, here we go. Of course, we know he's not bringing it up to hurt her. He wants her to see herself clearly for the first time, probably. Verse 19 and 20. How does she respond to this personal conversation? The woman said unto him, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. Our fathers worshiped in this mountain, and ye say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. What did she just do? She deflected, didn't she? She deflected. She's like, this is getting too personal. I'll rather debate you on worship. Which I was thinking, that's a, pretty, that's a bad mistake. You're debating the Son of God on worship. Of course, she didn't know who he was, but she deflects. She doesn't want to get religious. She, doesn't wanna, or she wants to get religious instead of talking about her issues. And I've had, that, I've had that happen to me before. I remember one time I was trying to witness to this man years ago, and within the first five minutes or less than that, he started talking about speaking in tongues and asking me questions about speaking in tongues. And I'm like, I don't even care about that. I want you to know Christ, you know. One time I was talking to someone about Christ, and, and it was a, late, a young, younger girl, and she was saying that uh, she started talking about angels. And I was like, look, we can talk about angels later. Right now you need to know Christ. Um, and so, and, but what those people are really doing, I think, are just deflecting. Uh, they don't want to deal with the sinful issue that the, the, the they need a Savior, and they deflect because it's too personal. And I think that's what she's doing here. So she brings up worship. So look at verses 21 through 24. And by the way, we're going to stop at 26, so we're almost there. But 21 through 24, Jesus said unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor at Jerusalem worship the Father. Ye worship, ye know not what. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour cometh and now is when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeks such to worship Him. God is a spirit. And they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. Our third and final point this morning is that Jesus teaches that true worship is done in spirit and truth. I don't think this lady was really even concerned about worship. But since she brought it up, Jesus goes ahead and, and talks about it. And gives us some great, great lessons. Based on verse 20, we can see that, that her idea of worship was, well, here's what my fathers did. Here's what the ancestors did, our forefathers did. Um, and it was all about Mount Gerizim, a certain place, and we're worshiping there. And her worship take was all about formality and location. And Jesus begins to say to her, no, worship is about truth and it's about spirit. So let me break this down for you pretty quickly here. But first, God is spirit. We know Jesus had a body, but we know God the Father has no body. And because he is spirit, we must worship him in spirit. And so he breaks these down, spirit and truth. The first one is we must worship in spirit. The idea here is that we're not focused so much on the where of worship. We're focused on the how and the whom of worship. It's who we worship and how we worship that are much more superior to where we worship. Worshiping in spirit is the opposite of 
focusing on formalism, traditionalism, and external things. Do you remember Matthew 15, 8? Jesus said this, and I've often worried that Jesus would say this about me or, or my church. But Jesus said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. I hope that he would not say that about us. Worship is first and foremost a heart experience. If you pray without your heart in it, that's not good. That's in vain. If you sing songs with no heart, what good is that? If we preach with no heart or if we read readings like we do sometimes with no heart, what good is that? Jesus says, when he says to worship in spirit, he says, don't get hung up on irrelevant controversies. Focus on how and who you worship. I've had people say this before. I've had people say, I just can't worship sitting down. Or I just can't worship standing. My legs hurt, and so i got to sit down and worship. Or I can't worship with my eyes closed or, or with my eyes opened. Or I can't worship unless this hand is this way or this hand is, you know. Or I can't worship unless a certain song is played. Or I can't worship unless this or that. And all of that is secondary or tertiary compared to the primary thing of worshiping in spirit. All of it is. I've had people say this, if we would dim the lights in here, I could really worship. What's that going to do? Just squint if you need to. Just squint. It's fine. Does, should that matter? Hey, look, and by the way, I, I, I understand that. I, I had that back in the day. I, I loved lights and candles. I really worship. I got some candles lit. But should that be the case? As people who know God and have the Spirit of God in us and the Word of God to instruct us, do we need all that stuff? Do we worship in spirit? I, I want to give you an examination, and I want you to ask yourself these questions, and this should reveal to you if you worship in the spirit or not. You ready? Do you care about the lyrics of the songs that we sing? And as we sing them, do you think about the lyrics and what they mean? And do you mean them as you sing them? People who worship in spirit do. How about this? Do you pray in our time together here at church? And when someone else is praying aloud, or as I did earlier, I asked you to pray before the preaching, were you just standing there letting the time pass? Or were you actually engaged in prayer with the Lord? People that worship in spirit engage with the Lord through the spirit. Do you care when you hear the Bible read? Does the Bible, does the word of God kind of mean something to you in your spirit? Do you half-heartedly listen to the sermon, or do you just wait for the sermon to be over so that you can leave? Or do you approach it with anticipation and hunger? Even if the preacher is not that exciting or that good, or it's too long when he preaches or whatever, do you still just say, I'm gonna, it doesn't matter, with my spirit, God help me, I'm going to listen to the word and try to apply it. How about this one? Do you have a desire for spiritual things outside of the church? If you don't have a desire for spiritual things outside of church, then you really need to think about your relationship with Christ. I wonder if one reason we don't see power in our lives and in our church at times is that our church services are external things. They're merely about the formality and not about the Spirit of God moving in us and through us. 
We must worship in spirit. Secondly, we must worship in, in truth. Um, and that can mean a couple things, but I'm just going to give you two things here. But we need to worship him as he has revealed himself. We need to worship God as loving, as gracious, as merciful, but also as holy and just and, and wrathful. If you only worship God for the things you like about him, you're not really worshiping God. You're really just worshiping yourself because you're just picking the stuff you like about him and you're worshiping that. We need to worship him for all that the Bible has revealed him to be, which is why we need to study the Bible to know who he is so that we can better worship who he is. If we only worship what we like about him, you know, what we like about him, what are we doing? He's revealed himself that we might worship, that we might respond. The second thing there is worship as he has prescribed. We must seek to honor God the way his word has told us to do it. How many churches today see the need to add worldliness to the church on their Sunday morning services? We do not need to add worldliness or things like that to the church. Someone will say, you know what, we really need to do this or that in the church. And the answer needs to be, what does the Bible say? If the Bible says we need to do it, then yes, we need to do it. We need, you know, the church down the road does this or that. Well, what's the Bible say? If the Bible says we need to do it, we need to do it. We must consult the Bible rather than popular opinion or even our own feelings when it comes to worship. He has prescribed through his word how to worship in truth. And so I hope and pray that we'll do even a better job here of centering the whole service around the word. Read the word, pray the word, sing the word, preach the word, and follow the word. The, the last note there got cut off, but worship must have head and heart. Your head must be engaged, your heart must be engaged when you worship. I've been to churches where they are focused so much on truth that they lack any emotion. And those kind of churches are very smart intellectually, but they just lack this spirit, right? And there's other churches that are the opposite, right? They're all about the emotion, the frenzy, but nothing about truth or truth lacks. And those are two, as Paul Jr. says, opposite sides of the road, right? They're ditches. And you want to be in the middle where we say, what is truth? We're going to stand on that. And at the same time, we should, there should be some emotion involved that we love, with our affections, right? That we love God. So if you think, man, I, I love the Bible, but I don't ever feel affection toward God, then you're just a Bible student. But we want to be Bible students, but also believers and love God. And so our affections and our minds must be involved. And then Jesus says in verse 23, the Father is seeking these type of people to worship. And Jesus was seeking a worshiper, and he went to this lady at this well, and he spoke to her, and he was seeking to make her into a worshiper of God. And I believe he, he does that, and we'll see that next week. But today, I wonder if there are people in this room who might say, I'm not a worshiper of God, or I'm not worshiping him the way I need to in spirit and in truth and in fullness and on a regular basis and on Sunday morning and on Wednesday and on Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, and with my job and with my family, and that I'm not worshiping him with all that I do. And the truth is we can worship him in all that we do as we respond to him and, and live for him. Let's conclude with verses 25 and 26. So the woman said unto him, I know the Messiah is coming, which is called Christ. And when he has come, he will tell us all things. 
Jesus said unto her, I that speak unto thee am he. One thing about this that's interesting to me is a lot of times in the Gospels, Jesus wouldn't really come out and tell people. He would just kind of wait for it. But here, when she asked this question, he says, I am the Messiah. What a moment after this whole conversation for him to just say, I'm he, I'm he. And I can just, I just picture just truth in his eyes, and I picture just um, mercy, grace for her. I am he. What a moment this must have been for her to realize that Jesus would say something like this. I am the one who is willing to forego racial barriers and share truth with you. I am the one who knows all about your life, and I'm not afraid. I'm the kind of person who's not afraid to bring up the mess in your life that I might help you with it. I'm the one, Jesus would say here, that, that can satisfy your deepest longings. I'm the one who can t tell you all the things you need to know, and I'm the one who can change you so that your life might become a life that serves God and worships Him in spirit and in truth. Jesus Christ is the one. And if you're lacking anything today, if you need anything today, and your deepest need, of course, is spiritual, He is the answer. We used to sing an old song, I need you, I need you, Lord. Uh, I need you more, more than yesterday. I need you more, more than words can say. Do you realize this morning that you need him? Even the most spiritual person in here, especially that person, needs the Lord day by day. Next week, we'll come back and, and see what happens. If you don't already know, this story has an awesome ending to it. And so we'll come back next week and check that out. Between now and then, I encourage you to think about uh, kind of our, our main three points that, that we brought up, if you didn't already get those, but uh, the gospel, Jesus shows the gospel breaks through barriers. He's the living water who can satisfy our deepest need, and he teaches us that true worship is in spirit and truth. Let's pray.